Good morning. Doing all right? Good, good. Hey, uh, so glad to be here with you guys. I told the first crew, uh, along with people who were praying with me this morning, it's been kind of a weird week. I have those as well. Uh, those weeks where you're just distracted and kind of discouraged and you feel like the enemy's coming after you and, and you feel like you're just kind of praying and keeping your head above water. Um, and so it was good to, to come in this morning and just to sing these songs. I've been reminded today of the importance of this. Uh, as I stood there and, and sang in the first gathering, it was almost like my, my heart, my mind, and my soul were recalibrated, if you will. So, man, so, so glad to be in the room with you all today. If you have a Bible or a device with some kind of Bible app on it, uh, grab those things. Go to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we started this new series called Vintage Faith. And in this series, we've been looking at different stories from the Bible of men and women, and we've been learning from their stories what faith is, what it isn't, and how to walk in faith as we face unique and, and even difficult circumstances in life. And today, we're going to continue on in this series by talking about the relationship between faith, courage, and fear. So to get us going, let's all answer a question together, all right? You ready? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Now, don't think of the lame answers like, oh, I'm afraid of the dark, I'm afraid of spiders. Like, think about those big fears in your life, those fears that, that if they came to pass, they would alter your life in a big way. What are you afraid of? I'll share a few of my fears with you so that you understand the kind of fears that I'm talking about, all right? One of my greatest fears in life is my two daughters growing up and not following Jesus. It scares me to death to think that that my girls could grow up one day and not love the Jesus I love and follow the Jesus I'm following. Uh, another fear is something awful happening to my family. Like I love my wife and my two daughters more than life itself. And I cannot imagine something ever happening to them. Uh, another fear is being a failure. Anybody identify with that? I've always been very driven. Uh, I've always taken very seriously the work that God has given me to do. And one of my fears is putting in hard work, energy, time, and effort and having nothing to show for it at the end of the day. Uh, another one of my fears, and this might be weird, but I'll explain. Uh, I, I fear at times losing my mind one day, Alzheimer's. Here's why. Because it runs in my family. There's a hereditary component to this disease. I watch my grandfather suffer and pass away as a result of, of, uh, of, of this awful disease. And so I've wondered, man, is that going to be my lot in life. And when I think about it too much, it kind of scares me. So again, think about this. What are you afraid of? As I was considering my fears this past week and writing this message, I kept asking myself this question. Why am I so afraid of those things? Have you ever considered that question concerning your own fears? Like, why are you so afraid of the things you're afraid of? I think the answer is simple, and, and I'll give you my thoughts. I asked my wife yesterday her answer to that question, and she agreed with me, so I think I'm on to something. Here's why I think we're so afraid of what we're afraid of. You ready? Lack of control. You with me? We fear what we can't control, right? Like, for example, I cannot control whether or not my daughters grow up and follow Jesus. I can teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus. I can show them by the way I live my life what it looks like to follow him. Uh, I can have them in church week in and week out. But I know at the end of the day, they have to grow up and make that decision for themselves. Uh, I, I can't control whether or not something bad ever happens to my family. I can try to protect them all I want. I can pray every day for their safety. 
But look, as a pastor, I have made enough emergency hospital visits and I've preached enough unexpected funerals to know that it's completely out of my control. Uh, I can't control much when it comes to success and failure in my life. I can work hard, I can put in time, energy, effort, I can grow as a pastor and as a leader, but I can do, I know this, I can do all the right things and things still go wrong. I have friends in ministry in that place right now. And finally, I I can't control my health. You know that about yourself too, right? I mean, I can go to the gym and eat right and get physicals every year, but at the end of the day, uh, my health is completely out of my control. Now, here's what happens when you and I finally come to grips with that reality. When we look at our lives, uh, for a lot of us at least, and we admit, okay, I'm not in control, here's what happens next, we start to worry, right? We look out at the future, and we worry about those things we're fearful of becoming our reality. And if we're not careful, here's what will happen. We will start to trust in our fears and our anxieties over the character and promises of God, and our fears and anxieties will dictate our joy and quality of life. I think some of us know what it's like to be in that place, don't we? Look, isn't this why stories of courageous people inspire us so much? Like, we hear stories of people uh, confronting fearful situations, terrifying possibilities. They walk through hard moments and seasons of life, and they do it in a fearless fashion. Isn't it hard to process that at times? A lot of times, most of us are, are left looking at those people going, how do they face what they face, experience what they experienced, And do it unafraid. It's hard to make sense of. Look in the story that we're going to dive into today. This is what we see. A man named Moses, along with his family, walking through terrifying situations and doing so in faith and courage over fear. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 11, we're going to start reading in verse 23, and I'll show you what I mean. Check this out. Hebrews 11, verse 23. The Bible says, by faith, Moses, when he was born... He was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, let's stop and talk, all right? Um, I'll give you a little bit of backstory. Moses, he was the guy, we know this from the book of Exodus, he was the guy that God used to deliver his people, the nation of Israel, from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. We also know from the book of Exodus that Moses had a very unique and very personal relationship with God. Exodus 33, 11 tells us that God would speak to Moses face to face as a man would speak to a friend. Now, look, when the Bible says that at his birth, his parents saw that he was beautiful, here's the idea. That somehow at his birth, his parents recognized there's something different about him. There's something uncommon about our baby boy. Uh, Many Bible scholars suggest that, that this idea of him being beautiful at birth implies that somehow his parents knew God has big plans For his life. And so what did they do? They hid him. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Beautiful baby boy, uncommon, different. God's got big plans. Let's hide him. Why would they do that? Well, when you read Exodus chapter 1, here's why. You find the reason. Um, When the Israelites were living as slaves in Egypt, God was continuing to bless them, multiply them, and the nation was exploding. Well, the Pharaoh in Egypt, the king, he got a little worried, and he thought... If the nation keeps growing at this rate, the men of Israel, they will revolt. They will start a war against us Egyptians. And because he didn't want that happening, he handed down a law or an edict that declared every baby boy born to an Israelite woman had to be thrown into the Nile River 
and put to death. But look, as we just read, Moses' parents, they didn't obey the law. They didn't obey that edict. Instead, they hid their boy in order to save his life. Now, this part of Moses' story represents a common fear that I think probably most of us struggle with from time to time, which is this, fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. Another way to uh, uh, label this would be fear of the what if. Anybody have a person in their life who constantly looks out of the future and asks those what if questions? Maybe you are that person. If so, look, that's a good indicator that you struggle with this fear. Think with me about all the unknowns and what ifs surrounding Moses' birth. I mean, when his parents first found out they were going to have a baby, I'm sure they were asking this question, what if it's a boy? What are we going to do? I mean, they had to wait nine months and wrestle with that question. There were no sonograms back then. So they weren't going to the doctor at 20 weeks and, and finding out the sex of the baby and making all their preparations for nine months. They were going, okay, what if it's a boy? What do we do? Do we hand him over? Do we stay here? Do we flee Egypt? Do we do something else? And when he was finally born, they made the decision, well, let's hide him. And they hid him for three months in a basket on the edge of the Nile River. Now think about all the what-ifs that would be going through your mind as a parent at that point. This is the Nile River. It's not a small body of water. Hey, what if it rains and the river rises and he's swept away and he drowns? What if some wild animal like a crocodile, a hippo, a large snake comes along and finds him? What's going to happen then? What if a person walking alongside the river finds him? Are they going to throw him into the river and, and obey the king's law and kill our baby boy? Or, or what if somebody finds out we're his parents and we're the ones responsible? Are they going to capture us and, and kill us? So many unknowns, so many what-ifs. And here's what's crazy to me. We just read it in verse 23. The Bible says that Moses' parents, they were unafraid. Now, how in the world is that even possible? Especially as a parent. Like, how do you walk through a situation like that unafraid? Well, I was asking my question, or that, that question to myself as I was writing this message this past week, and I was just saying to God, show me something. How in the world is this possible? And as I was wrestling and praying, uh, I felt like God kept bringing me back to these countless fear not passages that we find all throughout the Bible. There are hundreds of these, by the way, and when you read them, you pick up on a certain pattern that I believe deserves our attention today. So let, let me read a few of these, and, uh, and I want you to see if you can pick up on this pattern, all right? Listen, Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Psalm 118, 6 through 7. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Psalm 115, 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Isaiah 41, 13, for I, the Lord, your God, I hold your right hand. It's I who say to you, fear not, I'm the one who helps you. And then finally, Hebrews 13, 6, so we, the people of God, can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Did you pick up on the pattern? Look, in these verses, along with all the others, God promises two things to us as his people. He promises his presence, and he promises his help. 
He tells us that no matter what we face in life, he will go with us and he will give us everything we need to make it through. How comforting is this? To know that that no matter what life throws at us, the God of the universe gives us himself along with all of his resources so that we can make it through to the other side of what we're facing. Look, I'm going to make an assumption here. I kind of believe that Moses' parents believed in these promises. Make it an assumption because the Bible doesn't uh, explicitly tell us that, but, but here's why I believe it. Remember what we've been learning about faith? That faith is not hopeful, wishful thinking. Faith, according to the Bible, is not you looking out at the future and saying, I hope, I hope, I hope, and, and maybe if I hope enough, all that I'm hoping for will come to pass. Faith is not blind optimism, right? It's not you and I simply believing the best in spite of not knowing what the future holds. Instead, faith is you and I being confident in what the future holds because of who God is and what he's promised to do on our behalf. I have to believe that at some level, Moses' parents looked at each other and maybe, just maybe, they said, you know what? We don't know what's going to happen. A lot of what-ifs were completely out of control of our situation. But God, we know he's promised his presence and he's promised us his help. How beautiful is it to know that even though you and I, we don't know the future, God does. Even though we can't control our futures, the God who holds our very future in our hands, he goes with us and he gives us what we need every step of the way. Go back to the passage with me, verse 24. Let's keep reading. The writer goes on, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Uh, There's such irony in Moses' story. right? His parents hide him to save his life. They're probably wondering, man, is someone going to find him? And someone finds him. And the someone that finds him is the daughter of the Pharaoh, the same Pharaoh that handed down the law that all baby boys like Moses should be put to death. And the Bible tells us that the Pharaoh's daughter, she actually has pity on Moses. She sees this beautiful baby boy, and then she unknowingly agrees to allow Moses' own mother to nurse him in the early stages of his life, and she pays the woman for it. Isn't that awesome? Mom's in the room. Wouldn't you love to get paid for taking care of your own kids? This is Moses' mom. It's pretty incredible, right? Well, when he got a little older, we find out that that the Pharaoh's daughter, she actually adopts Moses, basically as her own son, and she takes him into Pharaoh's palace. But as we just read, look, when Moses grew up, he looks around and he starts realizing, these Egyptian people are not my people. These people live in large, comfortable lives. These are not the people that I belong to. My people are outside the palace suffering. My people are the ones who are being oppressed, who are, who are living in slavery. And Moses makes a decision, a decision not to play along anymore. A decision to stop pretending to be someone he's not. And he rejects the Egyptian lifestyle. He rejects the sin associated with that lifestyle and chooses instead to associate with his own people And as a result, he suffered mistreatment. This part of Moses' story represents another common fear I think we all struggle with at times, which is this. It's the fear of rejection. 
the fear of rejection. And just for clarity's sake, I'm talking about the kind of rejection that, that comes from you and I making a decision to live lives devoted to God and his people. And I'll make sense of this for Moses' story. All right, get this picture in your mind. Here's Moses. He's living in the royal palace. Life is easy. Life is comfortable. Any pleasure he wants, it's at his fingertips. Every opportunity under the sun is his. And he looks at this life one day and he says, I don't want it anymore. I would rather reject this lifestyle and go live out there with my people than to keep indulging sin than to keep faking my way through this, I would rather risk rejection than keep living the life I've been living. Isn't that crazy? He knew that if he rejected the Egyptian lifestyle, all the Egyptians who assumed that he was one of them would reject him as well. This is the same decision, don't miss this, this is the same decision you and I as followers of Christ face every single day of our lives. Will we pretend to be someone we're not? Will we blend in with the world around us? Will we choose the easy path and do what everybody else is doing in order to enjoy the pleasures, pleasures the comforts, the security that the world offers? Or, or will we remain devoted to God and to God's people even if it means being rejected by others who hate God and don't really appreciate his way of life? Look, you and I have to wrestle this fear to the ground like Moses did. At the end of the day, we've also got to understand, look, that you and I, we all reject something when all is said and done, right? You have to make a decision to either reject God and his way of life or to reject the world and all that it offers you. But you're rejecting something. Here's what's interesting. We see this in Moses' story. If you and I choose to reject God and his way of life, we also reject the people of God in the process. Do you know if Moses stood inside that royal palace and continued living his life? He would have left his people, the people of God, out there in the cold, never would have, have bridged that gap that existed. Here's what I'm saying for us. Look, here, let me make it practical. You cannot enjoy sin without first abandoning the people of God. I want you to hear me. This is why we're passionate here about getting you connected, getting you involved, getting you in a group, getting you participating. I know that if you're walking through life with other followers of Jesus who are loving you, praying for you, encouraging you, holding you accountable, people you're confessing your sins to, it will become impossible for you to enjoy sin, right? But if you abandon the people of God, it becomes all the easier to indulge the world. Here's the decision we've got to make at the end of the day. Look, here it is. Um, are you going to fear being rejected by the world and what it promises to offer you? Or will you fear more missing out on the rewards that Jesus offers you as a result of rejecting him and his way of life? Does this make sense? Again, you've got to choose uh, one over the other. What I love about Moses is this. The Bible tells us that he rejected the, the Egyptian way, the worldly way, by keeping his eyes on the re eternal reward. What does that mean? Look, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, that when you and I remain devoted to him, and when we suffer on his account, when we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, when the world rejects us because of him, not only does the kingdom of God belong to us, but when we show up in that eternal kingdom one day, the reward that awaits us is great. So again, what do you fear more? 
Do you fear the world rejecting you and and you missing out on all the temporary fleeting pleasures it tries to offer that cannot satisfy? Hear me, please. Or or do you fear more? God, I don't want to miss out on what Jesus offers. I don't want to miss out on what's going to last. I don't want to miss out on what truly satisfies. And and if knowing what he offers me means being rejected by the world, well, man, I'll just be rejected. What do you fear more? Go back to the passage. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. The Bible goes on, by faith, Moses, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who's invisible. Now, we know that Moses left Egypt twice. All right, he he left the first time after killing an Egyptian. He saw an Egyptian man beating an Israelite. He intervened and accidentally killed the guy. And after killing him, he buried his body in the sand. Well, Pharaoh found out about it, and he decided he's going to kill Moses. And so Moses, he leaves. The second time he left, uh, it was because of what we know as the exodus taking place, right? After leaving the first time, Moses, he eventually came back. God told him, I'm going to use you to free my people. You have to go back to Egypt. You have to declare that Pharaoh let my people go. And so the next time he left, he left with the whole nation of Israel, the people of God. Now, we don't know which time verse 27 is referring to, like which time he left. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What really matters in verse 27 is this. That when Moses left, he left unafraid of the anger of the king. And how did he do it? Well, he did it by enduring um, and and seeing him who's invisible. That's God. And we're going to come back and and talk about that more in just a moment. But but, but here's the, the, the fear that I want you to see from this part of the story. It represents another fear that I think all of us struggle with, which is this fear of man. Fear of man. This fear asks a simple question that apparently Moses did not... Uh, did not ask her in these times of leaving. The question is this, what can or what will man do to me? I'll make sense of it, all right? During Jesus' time on earth, he had some followers that apparently asked this question time and time again. And we find a clear example of what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to live with this fear day in and day out in the book of John, John 12. Read this with me, look. The Bible says, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, that's fear of man issue right there, they did not confess it. So they believed, they didn't tell anybody. Why? Well, they were worried that the Pharisees would put them out of the synagogue. Now look at this. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I want to ask you a question I've asked you before. Here it is. Whose glory do you love the most? Do you love the glory that comes from God the most, or do you love the glory that comes from man the most? In other words, do you care more about what other people think of you than what God thinks of you? And do you fear more what man can do to you, or do you fear more of what God is capable of? Let me give you some questions to answer for yourself so that uh, you can answer that question a little easier. All right, just listen to these. Think about your own life. Do you constantly need approval from other people? Do you have a hard time saying no because you don't want to disappoint? Do you spend a lot of time in front of the mirror worrying about what other people think of you? Are you constantly managing your reputation? Are you the type of person that needs to be needed? Do you have a hard time admitting when you've made a mistake and or saying you're sorry? Do you struggle with people-pleasing regardless of what it may cost you? And then finally, does your self-esteem and self-worth depend largely upon other people? Look, if you answered yes to any of those questions, here's what you need to know. Fear of man is an issue in your life. 
And look, you're not the only one. I'll be honest and tell you, I've struggled with this fear a lot of my life. It's much, much better these days. I don't struggle like I used to. But at times, I still have to fight it. And I have found that the key to fighting it is the same as it was for Moses. You endure through this fear by seeing him who is invisible, God himself. What does that mean? Well, it means that you walk with him each day. You press into a deep, personal relationship with him. You get to know him. And as you know God more and more, his Holy Spirit goes to work in you and he changes you. And part of that change results in you not really caring much anymore about what people think, but about what God thinks. No longer is your self-esteem or self-worth dependent on, on others or external factors. It's simply dependent upon Jesus. You don't consume yourself trying to please people. You want to please God. And at the end of the day, you don't really need to be needed. You just need God desperately to work in your life each day to make you more and more like him. So let me ask the question again. At this point in your life, whose glory do you love the most? The glory that comes from God or the glory that comes from man? And what does your answer say about who or what you truly fear? Go back to the passage. Let's finish reading verse 28. The Bible tells us, By faith Moses kept the Passover and he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. If you're new to church or new to Bible reading, I know that's a really weird verse. So uh, let's make sense of it, okay? God, we find this in Exodus 7 through 12. Uh, you can read these chapters on your own time this week. But God, along with Moses, used ten supernatural plagues to free his people from slavery in Egypt. Plagues like turning all the water in Egypt to blood. He sent frogs, lice, flies, locusts. He killed all the livestock. He struck people down with boils. He sent an awful hailstorm that wiped out a lot of their crops. He covered the nation in darkness. But the tenth plague was the absolute worst plague. It was the plague uh, of the death of firstborn sons. God's plan was to sweep through the nation of Egypt, Egypt and to kill all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians to prove to the people that he was God and Pharaoh was not. It was a Pharaoh's job to be messing with people's lives. Only God has the ability and power to do that. And ultimately, this plague was, was sent on the land to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. Well, in light of this coming plague, God pays Moses a visit. And he says, Moses, I want you to go to every household in Israel. I want you to tell them to kill a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb, one for each household. Tell the people to spill its blood and to then sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of their houses. And they were to do this so that when God passed through the land, he would see the blood on the doorposts of their homes and pass over their homes, sparing their sons from death. And how did Moses respond? Well, look. In faith, he did what God told him to do. He went to the people and said, look, we need to kill some lambs and, and sprinkle some blood so that when the destroyer comes, your sons will be spared, your households will be saved. This part of the story represents another common fear that I know countless people struggle with, and, and maybe you'll identify with this, but it's the it's fear of death. Fear of death. Fear of death is actually one of the most common fears in the entire world. It's so common that researchers and psychologists have spent countless hours studying it, researching it, and writing on the subject. And in their research, they have found that people are terrified of death for four primary reasons. The first is fear of pain, right? This is the belief that when I die, it's going to hurt. Um, this is why people are often scared to die in accidents, 
uh, unexpectedly because of a sickness. It's why people are afraid to get diseases like cancer, pain associated with death. It leads to a lot of fear. Second reason is just fear of the unknown. We talked about it earlier. I don't know what death's going to be like. You can't call up the guy who died two years ago and say, hey, let's have lunch. I'd like for you to tell me what to expect. It just can't happen. Nobody knows what it's going to be like. Another fear surrounding death is fear of non-existence. A lot of people out there think that, that once they die, life's done. That's hopeless. I'm just going to die and I'm going to fade from existence and nobody's going to remember my name. And then lastly, uh, the, the fourth fear is this, fear of eternal punishment. A lot of people wonder, when I die, what's going to happen next? I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been a, a good enough person. I really don't want to slip off in eternity and, and suffer punishment in some place for the rest of my existence. Look, even though some of us in the room might fear certain aspects of death, can I just remind us today, death itself is nothing to be afraid of. And here's why. Because 2,000 years ago, God gave us a Passover lamb, if you will, and his name is Jesus. John the Baptist called Jesus at his baptism the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he came to this earth 2,000 years ago, and he lived a spotless perfect, sinless life on our behalf. And he did so that at the end of his life, he could go to a cross and have his blood spilled, blood that would cover our sins. He did this so that you and I could be forgiven, accepted, loved by God, both in this life and in eternity. And God promises us in his word that if we will have faith in Jesus, if we will believe that he is that Passover lamb that God sent, to sacrifice himself on our behalf, that death will pass over us. That even though we'll die physically one day, real life, new life, eternal life, will continue on in his heavenly kingdom. How incredible is that? Look, you and I, we have nothing to be afraid of when it comes to death because Jesus has defeated death and freed us from that fear. If you've never put your faith in Jesus And I want to encourage you to do that today. It's not about what you can do. It's not about being a good enough person. Can I just tell you, you can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't come to church enough. Do all you want your entire life. You cannot save yourself from death. Only Jesus can do that for you. And I pray you put your faith in him today if you've never done that. Look, as we get ready to close, I want to give you two other takeaways uh, concerning the relationship between faith, courage, and fear. These are takeaways we see in Moses' story. So if you're taking notes, you can write this stuff down. First, we need to know that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. I think it's easy to believe at times that courageous people are fearless people. You know what I mean? That brave men and women were somehow born without the fear gene. That couldn't be further from the truth. Look, the truth is this, that without fear, there is no courage. Are you with me? Look, if there was nothing to be afraid of, There would be no such thing as a brave or courageous person. The only reason we're talking about Moses' courage today is because fear time and time again threatened to take him out, yet he acted in faith despite all of his fears. I love what Nelson Mandela says on this point. Check this out. He says, courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Please don't miss this. Look, for the believer in Christ, courage comes from a willingness to confront your fears with the promises of God. Are you with me? 
Let me just say that again. For the believer in Christ, courage comes from a willingness to confront your fears with the promises of God. So let me make it practical. Think again about that thing you're afraid of. What is it? Is it rejection? Is it fear of man? Is it fear of the unknown? Is it death? Is it something else? Here's what you do. When that fear rears its ugly head in your life, you declare to it the promises of God you know to be true. You say to that fear, you know what? I know I don't know what the future holds. It's all out of my hands, but I know the one who holds the future, and I'm trusting in him, and he's going to go with me, and he's going to give me everything I need to make it through. You know what, I know that the world could reject me if I remain devoted to Jesus and his way of life, but that's okay. The God of the universe accepts me, and if he accepts me, the world can reject me. It doesn't matter. My reward is great because of him. You know what, I I know people, they might not always be pleased with me. They might not always like what I do or the decisions that I make, but, but I'm not looking to people for my approval. God approves of me, not because of me, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And if I have his approval, that's the only approval I need. And death, 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 where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Praise be to God who has given us victory over death through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You declare the promises of God to that fear, and then you act and live in belief that your God is bigger than any fear you might face. Courage is not the absence of fear. It comes from a willingness to confront your fears in faith with the promises of God. The second uh, takeaway is this. The courage is found in the presence of God. Courage is found in the presence of God. I want to give you some homework this week, okay? Here's what I want you to do. Get your Bible out. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you a free one at our connection desk before you leave. Uh, or if you're more of a digital electronic person, download our free Cross Point City Church app. There's a free Bible on there, and you can use it. But here's the homework. Get your Bibles out and read the stories of the most courageous men and women in the passages of, of the Scriptures. Start with Moses. Go read the book of Exodus. And if you don't know where to go next, just Google it, and, and Google will tell you, all right? But read their stories. Do you know what you'll find? That all the brave men and women in the Bible constantly spent time in the presence of God. And it was in his presence that they found the courage they needed to confront their deepest, darkest fears. A great example of this in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Um, This was a guy who was arrested and ultimately put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And while sitting in a jail cell in Rome, not knowing whether he would live or die, he wrote some powerful words to a church in a city called Philippi. Look at this. He said, don't be anxious about anything. What audacity, right? Isn't it crazy? Here's a guy sitting in jail. He's probably not eaten in a while, probably smells really bad. He doesn't know if he's living or dying that day. And he has the audacity to write and to tell a bunch of other people, hey, don't worry about anything. What is that that you're anxious about? Quit being anxious about it. What powerful words. And then he goes on, but, but instead, here's what you do in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, please don't miss the next two words, with thanksgiving. How often do we run to God asking him to do things in our life without first thanking him for who he is and what he's capable of? You want God to move in you? Start thanking him for what you know to be true. 
He says, you, you pray, and, and with thanksgiving, you let your request be made known to God. And here's the beautiful promise. When you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Look, I, I would bet that there are people sitting in this room today who are in desperate need of the peace of God. I guarantee you there are people that walked in the doors this day and you're walking in fear, you're worried about something, anxiety levels in your life are at an all-time high, you're looking out in the, uh, at the future, and you're absolutely terrified of all that might wait on you out there. And you're in need today of God to do something. Look, God to do something in your life that surpasses human understanding. And so what are we going to do? Well, we're just going to heed Paul's words, and we're going to ask him to do God to do what only he can do in our lives. We're going to start with thanksgiving and then we're going to bring our requests to God and we're going to ask him to move. We're not going to sing. We're not going to do anything other than just take this time and press into God through prayer and allow him to have his way in this place and in our lives. So all over the room, I just want to invite you to bow your heads where you are. And first, look, as we're getting our hearts and minds ready, first, let me just talk to the people who walked in today who've never put their faith in Jesus as Savior. Like, you don't have the hope of being freed from death. You've never asked God to make you a new person, to free you from the things that you struggle and wrestle with each day. You think about purpose and meaning, and you have more questions and you have answers. Look, if you need God to do a work in your life today to change you, to make you a new person, to set you free, to give you hope not only in this life but in the next, look, that starts with you saying yes to a relationship with Jesus. I say this all the time. There are no magic prayers that save people. Jesus saves people. If you need Jesus to save you, I just want to help you right now in this moment to make a confession to him of who you believe he is and what you need him to do in your life. Just say something like this to God. God, I know I'm a sinful person and that my sin is keeping me from you. But God, I believe that you love me so much that you sent Jesus, your son, to be my savior. I put my faith in him, in the, in the perfect life he's lived, in the death that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead so that I could have new and eternal life. And God, I am asking you today to save me, to free me, to forgive me, to accept me into your family as a loved son, as a loved daughter. God, save me from death. Give me new life. Give me eternal life. I say yes to Jesus. Listen, if you just prayed with me, I just want to welcome you into the family of God. Because of your faith in Jesus, you right now, the Bible teaches, are a son of God, a daughter of God. And God loves you, and that will never change from this day forward. And for the rest of us, here's what I want to do. If you're sitting in your seat right now and you go, man, I, I just need to be prayed for. I'm dealing with a lot of fear, a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety. And I, I need the promises of God to set me free, to help me overcome those fears. Look, I just want to pray for you. Right where you're sitting, uh, with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just lift your hand if that's you? James, I, I just need you to pray for me right now in this moment. Their hands going up all over this room, all over this room. 
you didn't raise your hand, would you just join me in praying for all these people whose hands are, are lifted? God, first off, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, God, that you're bigger than our fears. You're greater than our anxieties, God. You're, you're more powerful than all that we're worried about. We thank you that your promises are true for us. If we are, uh, if we are yours, God, we thank you that, that you go with us into the unknowns of life, that, that you give us all that we need to face what, what we're facing, God. We thank you that your promises are true. Help us to take uh, greater hope in those promises, to put our faith in them. God, I pray for the people that, that raise their hands. God, I don't know all their stories, but you do. You know exactly what they're struggling with, exactly what they're wrestling with. And God, I pray that starting right now in this moment, and I pray that this would continue long after they leave this place, give them your peace. Remind them of your presence. God, do something in their lives that make no sense to anybody else, God. And help them to be courageous. Help them, God, to walk in faith, not in fear. God, give them what they need to do that. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who can change lives, God. And we're praying that that would continue after we leave this place. Lord, we love you, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.